What's going on, everybody? It's been a while. Uh, Final Whistle Sports Podcast is back. It's been a couple weeks. Uh, I've had to try and adjust with uh, a little bit of some work schedule changes and fortunately haven't been able to record a podcast. But, you know, trying to get some consistency back for the month of November. If you guys hadn't had a, haven't heard in these different things, happy Halloween. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Hope you guys ate a bunch of candy. But in these last couple weeks, sports, sports, and more sports has been taking place. We're already in the World Series now for the Major League Baseball. College football's in full swing with the college football playoff, announcing their first rankings. NFL is kind of interesting right now with who is at the top and who's at the bottom. And we'll try and adjust as many as many things as possible tonight. But also, let's start with the NBA. NBA and hockey have also started. But the biggest storyline that has definitely taken place is the debacle in Brooklyn with the Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, Ben Simmons, Steve Nash. We all thought that this was potentially going to work. There was a fiasco in the offseason. There's been a fiasco pretty much almost it hasn't gone smoothly since Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving signed with the Brooklyn Nets. They made that trade for James Harden. Didn't work out. James Harden leaves. Kyrie not getting the vaccine mandate, so he wasn't able to play, only able to play in home games. There's just so many unknowns, variables that are taking place in Brooklyn, and they've only won one playoff series. So what happens now? You try to right the ship and make your all-in push, so to speak, by firing Steve Nash, and most likely going to be hiring Ime Udoka. It seems like that's inevitable now. He's a clear front runner. They're working on a deal. It's just only going to be a matter of time. With Ime Udoka suspended from the Boston Celtics, this feels like their last-ditch effort to make it work. But the problem is this team does not look good. The team can't defend. That's been their issue since they've got there. One of the worst teams statistically defensively. And then you're so reliant on Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving to score. If one even has a subpar night or an average night, you're going to lose. They need to both be great for them just to be even successful in these games. And you look at the roster. You have Patty Mills. Joe Harris isn't back yet. Seth Curry's out still with injury. There's so many top-tier players on this squad, you would think, how can you not make it work? But the team does not gel. The teams that they lose against are teams that they are clearly better than on paper. But on the court, they are night and day behind everyone else. It's absolutely absurd. The team really cannot figure out an identity. They can't stop the pick and roll. They leave so many open shots to their opponents that even if they shoot lights out, that's not helping them win games. They're shooting they, – Kevin Durant, I think these last couple of games, is averaging 33 points, something ridiculous, over 30 minimum. And they're still losing some of these games by double digits. They're not competitive. The games are competitive. 
it's astronomically insane to believe that they're going to fix this. Ime Udoka is not the answer. Ben Simmons is 10 times worse than he was in Philadelphia. Where do we have these unknown variables thinking that he was going to come off the street after two years of basketball, that he was going to be elite? I know many thought that, but it doesn't seem that way. So how are you, where, how, where do you fix it? How do you fix it? You got, I mean, Udoka, you have to try and understand the identity he's going to try and pursue and, and place into this, these teams, but it looks extremely dire in Brooklyn. As for Steve Nash, you have to think about it. Did he actually really deserve that job? No coaching experience. And then you get the head coach, Kevin Durant, and Kyrie Irving to be a, con a team that's supposed to be a contender. And they were nothing close to that the entire time he was there. If you're a first-time head coach, normally you're – who says he didn't – I'm not saying he didn't deserve a head coaching job, but did he deserve that job where you're instantly a part of the mix? instantly going to try and figure out a way to win a championship. And you can see, I mean, you're hiring the guy, the guy that took you guys out in the playoffs last year, because it was night and day. Y'all got swept in the first round. And there was a coach that could make adjustments and had his team behind him. And there was another coach that had no idea to make an in-game adjustment and was a deer in headlights in that those second halves, especially in crunch time in the fourth quarter. That was Steven Nash. There was no sense of urgency. There was no sense of practicality to be able to make an adjustment for them to be successful. But it's sad. It's really disappointing. So how do you fix that? You try and make an all dish ever. I don't even think it's going to work with you, Doka. I think Brooklyn is unsalvageable at the moment. And that is hard for me to say as I was one of the advocates of thinking that these guys were going to win a championship. It was going to be a matter of time. And now you look back on it that when Milwaukee won and Kevin Durant was pretty much playing by himself with Kyrie unavailable, James Harden barely available, where he hits the game tire potential game winner that you thought if he was had a shoe size less, right? Feels like that was their opportunity and it didn't happen. And now they are completely out of the conversation at, of being an NBA title contender. Speaking of which, that leads me into the next thing that I wanted to talk about tonight which is the college football playoff. So many teams have now played. Everyone's played a minute, roughly their minimum of eight games. Their first rankings was revealed last night. No, no surprise who we thought the top team was, which was the Tennessee Volunteers, which was more or less Hendon Hooker's the clear favorite for the Heisman right now. I mean, he says neck and neck with CJ Stroud. I don't buy that how Hooker has played in the big game so far. They have clearly have the best wins, and they have now their real true tests against Georgia upcoming this Saturday in Athens. 
Ohio State number two, Georgia three, Clemson four, Michigan five, Alabama six, TCU seven. Those are the Oregon eight, USC nine, and LSU 10. That rounded out the top 10 of the playoff. What did I learn from that? Learned two things. Out that the SEC, depending upon how this weekend goes, will probably get two teams. Because I think the winner of Tennessee, Georgia will go run out, run the table the rest of the way to the SEC championship. And if Alabama beats LSU, I think Alabama will win out into the SEC championship game. And then they will probably knock off Tennessee or Georgia in the SEC championship. Leaving then you have three one-loss teams. No one will put three teams in, but you'll get two. Most notably, if Georgia loses this weekend, though, they're done. Georgia's only true win is Oregon. On It was pretty much a home game for them at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. And they routed the Ducks. Ducks didn't even look like they were blonde on the same field. But other than that, they haven't beaten anybody. Their best win after that is South Carolina. So where do you go from here? Is that, will the SEC get three teams? No, I don't think so. Because you need so much else to happen, right? You need Oregon. You need Utah basically to win the Pac-12, which is possible but highly unlikely based off of tiebreakers with Oregon right now undefeated in conference. Utah does hold the tiebreaker over USC. Then UCLA holds the tiebreaker over Utah. So, and UCLA lost to Oregon. So there's so many unknown variables there that Utah needs help to be able to probably win the PAC 12. So they, for Utah, they need a USC to beat UCLA because then Utah wins out. They hold the tiebreaker over because they're second. One of their two losses, if we do all remember, is against Florida that opening weekend. Then what else is there? Michigan and TCU. One team has an awful strength of schedule. The other has an, a great strength of record. But two are being... Both are being completely pretty much left off the radar. TCU's at seven behind one loss, Alabama. They need help. They need Clemson to probably lose. Then you need to hope that Tennessee or Georgia run the table and they go. They're the ones that represent the SEC, not Alabama, because then you're getting that second SEC team in. TCU needs so much to go right, and they have, like, the third stroke. They're ranked third in strength of record. Third. It's not like the Big 12 is slouch. This is probably the most parity that the Big 12 has had in a long time with how good, well, with, with Kansas State, Oklahoma State, Baylor and Texas are solid this year. Oklahoma is a little down, but TCU went through a gauntlet. And then remember, Kansas was a ranked team at some point. I mean, they've kind of fallen off a little bit, which happens when your starting quarterback goes down. But 
you would think that would be in their favor, but the disrespect to the big 12 and potentially their, the team that the big 12 can't play defense. That may be a subjective opinion that I'm applying out there, but it's kind of eye-opening to see that um, it's there. Recognize to see that all the stars align with that. Right. And Michigan, Michigan, you're done unless you beat Ohio State and run the table. Your non-conference schedule was a joke. I, Colorado State, UConn, I can't name the third team off the top of my head. But three extremely subpar teams in comparison to your program where your three non-conference games. And you really haven't played anybody outside of Penn State in conference. You'll get Illinois. You'll get Ohio State. You'll have two true tests the rest of the way, right? But if you don't beat Ohio State, there is no shot you guys get in. None whatsoever. Some may say it's disrespect to Michigan Wolverines, but that's not how I see it. I see it as something that needs to be raised and said, why didn't you schedule those extra games? Why didn't you schedule one of those quality opponents? And yet you're more trying to make sure that you have that zero behind your record to make sure that you're even in the conversation. I think a one-loss Michigan probably gives them a better chance than a zero-loss Michigan, depending on the quality of opponent. If it's a quality loss against a top 15 team, top 10 team, instead of going against a UConn team, that program that hasn't been good at football since Dan Orlovsky was there, right? So you got to try and pick your battles. And you're starting to see that in college football is that they're starting to more or less figure out this new system. I mean, it's going to 12 anyway, so all this will be moot. However, in these this year, and probably I'm assuming they probably won't go to 12 for not next year, but the year after, probably 2024, I'm guessing would be my long shot guess. Is that they you're supposed to identify the four best teams, but they don't go based off of what they're seeing. They're also taking in how you're playing your opponents and the opponents that you're still playing. They're still taking everything into account with strength of record, who your opponents are, how do you look in those opponents with your eye test. There's so many variables that the committee looks at. And some it's a week to it's a, sometimes it's a team to team thing, right? One team has the strength of record, but they're but they don't really truly pass the eye test. The other team passes the eye test by being dominant, but they haven't played anybody. That's Michigan and TCU. I mean, TCU has passed the eye test for me. However, arguably, it's the defense that's not passing the eye test, which is why they're still significantly out of the loop. And being behind a one-loss Alabama, you have three SEC teams ahead of you. That makes it extremely difficult to try and jump one of them, which means you probably need Clemson to lose. But fascinating to think about in the college football playoff, how that's all going to unfold. That's one thing that I love about college football. It's my favorite sport. It's not even close. Is that there's so much parity 
and momentum swings in an instant can be like the snap of a finger. One way is going this way and all of a sudden it's going the other way. Nothing like the NBA, NFL, NHL, MLB. None of it has that, right? Truly fascinating to think. All right, lastly, before we wrap up for tonight, we're going to do a quick segment. This is going to be a very extremely short episode um, as I'm trying to get back into the swing of things. But we're going to do a segment called Around the Horn here. We're going to jump around discuss some things that I think are crucial for us to talk about. Okay, World Series. Phillies versus the Astros. And I got something to say to this, is that Houston's already being accused of cheating some more. If you watch some of these clips that you're seeing, that possible accusations are already out there, like the Frankie Valdez wiping his right hand and put it and then rubbing with his left hand and then rubbing it onto the baseball, whatever that was, his glove. I mean, he gets checked after every inning, but and they didn't see anything. But unless they're trying to create a facade for something, a mirage, and they're trying to use that as a template because they've already been accused of cheating, right? But so how do I see this unfolding is that I still think Houston's going to win the World Series. I do. No offense to the Philadelphia Phillies. What they've done has been miraculous. Bryce Hyper and Reese Hawkins and Hoskins have put these two, these put the Phillies on their back with the long ball. Two absolute studs. Bryce Harper was the reason that they're in the World Series with that game six home run, or not game six, excuse me, game five home run that put them here. And Reese Hoskins has been an absolute stud this entire postseason. But when it comes down to it, I got to trust the pitchers that are still going to be playing. You got Justin Verlander still. You have Valdez again. That gets you to at least th- three wins, and then all right bets are off in a game seven. So I think that the story is still to be written in this World Series. I think Houston's going to win it in seven. I don't think they're going to uh, – I think they'll win tonight and then they'll lose tomorrow. So it'll be 2-2 after tonight. They'll lose, be down 3-2, and they'll win game six and game seven to take home the World Series. But Jose Altuve, dude, snap out of it, bro. You've been absolutely garbage this postseason. All postseason. Can't hit the broad side of a barn right now. It's been atrocious. And you're st- – hoping that he can somehow snap out of it. But it seems like it's so mental now with him that he is not going to be able to. Next. To all my followers and friends, I'm going to apologize now, but New York sports is going to fail you again. It seems like everyone tries to get on the New York hype train and they continuously and continuously and continuously tried to fall into what they're trying to sell. New York Mets, New York Yankees, New York Mets, arguably the best team in baseball pretty much for 90% of the regular season. Then you falter down the stretch and then you lose in the first series. Like, come on. To the, 
Don't get me wrong. Padres are a good team. But the city was singing their praises that it's going to be Mets, Yankees, World Series. And look around. None of that. Yankees got a bye. Had to squeak past Cleveland. And then absolutely dominated by the Houston Astros. You couldn't even tell me and make this argument that it truly felt like the Yankees were going to win any of those games. None. Even Houston was down, it felt like they were in control. Which is absurd to think about. That they were down in several of these games, but it never felt like it was out of hand. It always felt like Houston was going to figure out a way to win the game. So how do you control that? How do you find that out? Now you have the New York Giants and the New York Jets. Giants are at 6-2. and two. Jets are at 5-3. and three. The Giants have won their games because of Brian Dable. Not because of Daniel Jones. I mean, you can make the argument because of Saquon. But Brian Dable has been the – the Giants have been – have been kind of leaves the Seattle – this past weekend against Seattle out the window. Before that game, they were the best second-half team in football. And it's not even close. Team can make adjustments. They're always down, slow starts. But Dable knows how to get the best out of Daniel Jones and out of Saquon Barkley. And they have to pretty much run the ball because their wide receivers don't know how to catch the ball. I don't even think they've – can't even tell you half the guys that they have on their team now With after trading Kadarius Tony, They can't catch. So you're not getting any help out of the wide receivers. It's Daniel Jones running the football and Saquon Barkley running and catching the football. That's it. That's their offense right now. And they're methodically maximizing their opportunities and getting points when they need to. And it just sickens me that uh, as a Washington fan, Graham Gano is now arguably the greatest kicker in the NFL behind Justin Tucker. And we used to call him, oh, no, Gano, because we knew when he was coming in, he was going to miss the kick. Just, ugh, disgust me. As for the New York Jets. This team has so much talent, but their quarter both teams have quarterback issues. But what I saw against Zach Wilson was Zach Wilson this past week against New England. This is a Patriots team that is not good. And yet you're throwing interceptions into triple coverage off your back foot like it's a fadeaway jumper. Like you're doing it in pickup. No regard for the consequences of turning the football over. Like, dude, grow up. I mean, the Jets and the Giants are probably going to end up slipping. I think one of them will actually make the playoffs. I would probably lean towards the Giants than the Jets because of how, just based off of their conference, the NFC is a lot easier than the AFC, in my opinion. But they're going to let you down. Don't fall into the hype train. Don't do it, New York. You've already done it. You've already done it so many times. Look at the Knicks and the Nets, too. They're two failures. I mean, the Knicks have started quite well, but we've already talked about this earlier on the show, about how the Brooklyn Nets are an absolute 
disaster. They're a bombshell. Don't fall into the trap that the Jets and Giants are giving you. They're fool's gold right now. Fool's gold. Don't do it. They're going to let you down. Why? Because that's what New York sports does. Last thing around the horn is we're going to talk about live golf and how it's affected the PGA Tour. Live Golf just came to a conclusion this past weekend at Trump National Doral with a team style that led into a team stroke play. I thought it was fascinating. I honestly would have probably preferred if I had to give any critique, you leave it at match play with how you guys did it, with two singles and one team. So you had three matches going on. But... Based off of the structure, once you have four teams left, you can't really do it that way. Or maybe you make it a 36-hole final. That's a lot of golf, but and you're trying to kind of be adamant on the 54-hole style, right? But honestly, I loved it. It's fascinating. It's different. It gives a different dynamic. I mean, it needs some, but still, it and it's still in the the baby, the incubation stage of how they're trying to do this. It's only going to give a better product. It's only going to continue to get a better. If they get world golf rankings, a lot more guys are going to leave. It's unique. Live golf is a success in my book after year one. Yes, money talks, right? But that's what every other sport does. Why shouldn't golf be a part of free agency? I mean, the PGA Tour has been monopolizing off of their guys forever. Why not allow them to go explore other opportunities? That's the, the American way. I get it. You don't like it? It's fine, Jay Monahan. Grow up. Grow up. But Live Golf, it's going to work. I think it's going to work for at least a couple more years. And it might even, it might even, it won't replace the PGA Tour because they're not going to want to get too many players involved, right? But if they can get a handful more of these top-tier guys, watch out. Like, I think the PGA Tour, when they hopped on trying to refute any Live Golf stuff, is because they knew that the product was actually better than they anticipated it to be. Not just the money part. And that's what they did. The PGA Tour counteracted them, tried to counteract the money as much as possible. But you're making events mandatory to try and promote the game better. You're requiring players to play at certain events. I mean, at Live Golf, there's only so many events. It's not like you're in the PGA Tour, you're mandating, like, 20 events that they have to be a part of and live golf they might only be playing 12 to 15 max it's creative it's intuitive greg norman's created a, an idea that's going to probably sell because i think it's going to be more relatable the shotgun start you're not there for 16 hours in a day you're there half that 
even probably even less than half of that, right? Because it's not everyone going off of one or 10. Everyone's going off at the same time. Rounds are probably a little bit longer. So probably closer to five, five and a half hour rounds. That's okay. It creates a fascinating dynamic because you have to be leaderboard watching too. You have to understand where your team is at, where yourself individually is at. Because if someone catches fire on the course, they all have the exact same number of holes left than as you as the as the leader. It's not like you get out ahead and shoot like 50, 60, 62, and then you're done while the leaders still have nine holes to go. No. You're shot for shot with everybody the entire way. And if you're going low, you've got a shout chance because then the pressure's not – I think it's actually greater, greater pressure for the leaders because it's happening all in real time as the same time as they are. It's not like they say, all right, someone went low. They're ahead of me or close and tied with me. No stress. I have so many holes remaining. And they're done. I'm I'm not. I got holes to play. I got – No. On this side, it's I. They both have holes to play, and they've caught up. Truly unique, truly that fascinating dynamic. But that was around the horn going against. We're gonna try and I like this topic a little bit. Just some quick synopsis on some different things that are taking place. Well, I told you it was gonna be a quick and short episode. We talked about Brooklyn a little bit. We talked about the college football playoff. Didn't talk much about the NFL tonight. Um, Biggest thing is that I can tell you right now after the trade deadline is that Green Bay has made a couple of mistakes by not acquiring a player, but they also are total duds. Miami like, completely won their trade for Trey Lance, bringing in Jalen Waddle, Tyreek Hill, and now Bradley Chubb last night. That's with the players, the picks they acquired with from the Niners for Trey Lance. Think about that. Niners went all in with Christian McCaffrey. I think that's going to be fascinating, especially after trading away Jeff Wilson. So they've shied away from that multi-back dynamic. It is going to pretty much be McCaffrey's backfield. And then what are you going to say about Philadelphia and Buffalo? Buffalo played their F game in that second half, and they still dominated the Packers. Philly's schedule is pretty – they're going to be favored in every game. But – they're blowing the teams out that they so it's nothing like that. And Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady, are they done? They, I think they might be. Tom Brady's at least done after this year, but luckily their division is so bad right now in the NFC South that I think Tampa Bay is going to ride the ship. Green Bay is so far now three and a half, four games behind Minnesota. Truly fascinating stuff taking place all around. Talked about around the horn, did some college football playoff. Give you some quick picks. Georgia's going to beat Tennessee this weekend. It's going to be tight, don't get me wrong, but Georgia's going to win. Home field advantage matters in college football. But it's nine and a half points. If I'm a betting man, and occasionally I am, you take the Vols on the spread there. But that was... The Final Whistle Sports Podcast. Look out for more content. We're going to start trying to drop episodes every Wednesday or Thursday, one of those two days. So stay tuned for that. Appreciate y'all. We got guests coming on in the next couple weeks. 
hopefully some potential interviews as well and the works on that. Not going to guarantee anything, but be on the lookout for those special episodes. This is Blaine Spencer from The Final Whistle signing off. Have a good night, everybody.